It's a fancy theater with plush red seats. I'm standing up, gripping the bar, leaning all the way over the top, as far as I can, trying to climb into the movie to immerse myself between Marilyn Monroe's breasts. It's the TMI Project Podcast. A series of stories about the too much information parts of ourselves we usually leave out because we're too ashamed or embarrassed. This is season four. Pride Stories. You're Julie Novak. You're a lesbian. And you're Blake File, and you're a gay. That is correct. This season, we're going to profile some of the most incredible LGBTQIA storytellers and follow their narratives right up until the moment they walk on stage and read their monologues live in front of an audience. Before we get started, just want to let you know that as the TMI implies, some of this content might be too much information for some listeners. If you or someone you know is struggling, there is always help 24-7 at thetrevorproject.org. And remember, your support keeps our content free and accessible to everyone who wants to listen, gay or otherwise. So if you like what you hear and you're able to chip in, thank you. You can do so at tmiproject.org, where you can also find some fabulous merch. Yes, speaking of which, this season is brought to you by Mr. Julie Tees. And you guessed it, I'm Mr. Julie, your co-host and the designer of custom queer AF t-shirts. Don't just say gay. Scream it out loud with Mr. Julie Tees. A portion of our proceeds from all t-shirt sales will be donated to TMI Project to keep the creation and amplification of queer stories alive. Follow me on Instagram at Mr. Julie Tees and shop your favorite styles at MrJulieTees.com. Now, let's dive in. In today's episode, we're introducing you to Zelda, a.k.a. Judith Z. Miller. Yes. Zelda is the definition of a true original. She sure is. And she's going to take us on a journey back in time to a little movie theater Mm. where she sees for the very first time one Ms. Marilyn Monroe in all of her sultry glory. Did I ever, sorry, this is a total side note. Did I ever tell you that I got to go into Marilyn Monroe's apartment in New York City? Did I ever tell you this? No, but I'm not surprised for some reason. I love Marilyn Monroe. And the first time I heard this story, I was so captivated because in a very different way, I was also deeply mesmerized by Marilyn Monroe's boobies. So wait, do you feel similarly about Marilyn Monroe the way that Zelda does? No, listen. We're talking about a few decades here. Like, I didn't feel that way about Marilyn Monroe, but fast forward to the 1980s and you give me one Tracy Pollan. She played Michael J. Fox's girlfriend on Family Ties. Let me look her up, actually. I'll send you a picture. Hold on. Can you see her here? Oh, okay. So the first thing I see is a unibrow. That's what I'm seeing. That's Michael J. Fox. Tracy has the longer hair. No, no, I'm looking right at Tracy Pollan. I see her and there's some unibrow action going on. It's not full. I'm not insulting your love of her. But why was that the first thing you picked out? It also wasn't all about how she looked. I think that she's beautiful, but it was also about her character, Ellen Reed. Like there was a really special love story going on between. Can I tell you something fun for me? I guess. Family Ties ended the year that I was born. (laughs) 
we've derailed a little bit. Now, I do want to say back to the original conversation from Zelda. She's an incredibly gifted storyteller, but under that humor is something that's a lot more powerful. When I hear her story, it fills me with pride and it makes me realize that I depend on her story and on those kinds of stories to make me feel more like myself and make me feel like if she could get through it, then I can get through it too. It's really important that we have her story in our collection here on season four. Yeah. And it's also a great story about community. It is really funny. You won't soon forget it. So should we play it? I think we should play it. And then I think folks may want to consider staying on after just to hear a little bit from Zelda and what she's up to these days. I'm eight years old. My parents take me to see the movie Some Like It Hot, starring Marilyn Monroe. It's a fancy theater with plush red seats. We're in the very front row of the balcony, high over the orchestra. A thick, shiny brass railing protects us from falling onto the people seated below. Marilyn is singing, I'm through with love, I'll never fall again. And as she breathes in deeply through her pouted lips to enunciate her words, I can see the details of her full breasts through her tight-fitting, completely sheer gown. I'm standing up, gripping the bar, leaning all the way over the top as far as I can, trying to climb into the movie to immerse myself between Marilyn Monroe's breasts. I hear my mother calling to my father, psst, psst, Sid, Sid, look at Judy. What's going on with Judy? I'm 11 years old and I'm in trouble, mainly because I'm a luzzy, at least that's what I think I am. I've been in love with Judy in summer camp ever since I can remember, and I know I'm not supposed to be. I've never met or seen a luzzy, but I know it's a word that defines what I want as something nasty and bad, something that should not exist. It's 1962 in suburban New Jersey. There are no lezzies on TV and books or movies, except when the children's hour comes out on late night TV. <laughs> I watch as Shirley MacLaine confesses her secret love for Audrey Hepburn and then hangs herself. Audrey cautiously opens the door to see the ominous shadow of Shirley's body swinging back and forth, back and forth, as she hangs limp from a noose. That's the only solution, it seems. I write about my feelings in poetry. Why do I deserve this fate of hard, dark wall and iron gate? These aren't feelings that anyone I know talk about, and they aren't feelings I would ever admit. At 14, I'm in love with Elaine, one of my best friends. I want to throw her a wonderful birthday party. At first, my parents say okay, and then after I have everything planned, change their minds and say no. Devastated, I go into the kitchen and grab the black-handled dagger out of the drawer. I run to the basement where I had planned to throw Elaine's party. I fall on my knees, sobbing. I try as hard as I can to stab myself in the gut, but... I can't make myself do it. Every time I'm outside, I look up at the night sky and wish upon a star. 
starlight, star bright, first star seat of night. Wish I may, wish I might have this wish I wish tonight. I wish I was no longer a lesbian. I'm 15 and Mrs. Brook is so beautiful. I am crazy in love with her. She has fair, delicately freckled skin, blue eyes, a full mouth, and a sweet disposition. And she's a really good high school teacher, too. I stand in front of her desk one day, gazing down upon her delicate, sparkling strands of wheat golden hair. I am so taken by her beauty. As her baby blues turn up to look at me, brazenly, I blurt out, what does your husband have that I don't? <laughs> Mrs. Brooke looks at me like I have two heads. He's my husband. The school sends me to a social worker, an older woman, around my mother's age, who starts asking questions like general stuff. How's school going? She's acting stiff, nervous, uncomfortable, and I can feel her leading up to something. What do you want to do to other girls, she asks, like her mouth is holding back vomit. It's the sexual part she wants to know about. I don't remember my answer. All I remember is the terrible feeling that everything about me is wrong and bad. At 15, I'm sexually assertive and simultaneously suicidal. I can't stand the pain of not having sex with a girl and not being loved. It just hurts too much. At 16, I fall in love with Peter. He's handsome, tough, with knife scars from fights, but he treats me great. Even though Peter is so sweet and I am in love with him, I have to be with a girl. She's a friend and I'm not in love with her, no matter. I leave Peter for Maddie. One day, I buy Maddie a new bra. Nothing fancy, not romantic, just a plain white bra. Because she needs one and I've got the money. Her sister finds the bra, shows it to her father, and he goes ballistic. He storms into my father's butcher shop and in front of all of the customers demands that I stay away from his daughter or he will put me in a house of detention. I am terrified because I know that man means business. So I lie. I don't know what he's talking about. My parents send me to a psychiatrist who tells me I can beat this. I had a boyfriend and I have other boyfriends, which proves I like boys, and if I just try hard enough, I can stop wanting girls. I have a dream about riding a big stallion that rears up on his hind legs, but I manage to stay in the saddle and retain control. The psychiatrist tells me that the dream means I can conquer my urges towards girls. I see the psychiatrist once a week on Wednesdays, right after school. Each week, he convinces me that I can go straight. On Thursday and Friday, I feel strong and I stay away from Maddie, but then I can't stand it. Late Saturday night, Maddie and I get in my car and go to our usual spot, where no one will ever find us, right behind the police station. <laughs> this goes on until I leave for college. I'm at my locker getting dressed on the first day of freshman gym class. I turn around, and there she is. Beautiful, long dark hair, dark soulful eyes, lovely skin, smiling. We become immediate friends. I follow Lori to her dorm room and inside there's a big sign hanging from the ceiling with one word in large black letters. Guilty, 
A shiver runs up my spine. I need to touch, be held. I need a girl to speak to me softly, to look deeply into my eyes, someone to kiss. I pursue Lori. We fall in love. Lori is very deep and moody, but also lots of fun. We're both passionate, and being secretive makes it all the more exciting. We must make love as quietly as possible because we are doing it on the top bunk of my bed right above my college roommate. I have no idea how we think we can get away with this. Maybe it's like being behind the police station, so obvious no one will even think to look. I have lots of other friends in the dorm too. Everyone knows me. As I walk down the hallway, they greet me with a wave and a friendly, hey. Well, one day I'm walking down the hallway in the dorm and a girl I know walks towards me and then turns her head away. And then another and another. Whenever I get on the elevator, all the other girls get off. Lori says the same things are happening to her. We do some research and find out that the progressive Antioch College in Ohio has a tiny sister school in Baltimore, not far away. We visit small classes, interesting mix of students. Students have a big say in what happens at the school and there are no grades. Yes, so we go to Antioch. On one of the first days of class, we're in a big group therapy session, a circle of about 50 students. I'm anxious. The leader stands in the middle of the circle, a tall, commanding black man with a booming voice. What if he calls on me? What am I supposed to say? I know I am here, but I can't say that out loud. He turns on his heels and points directly at me. Why are you here? Because I'm attracted to girls. I barely get the words out of my mouth. I have my head down because I can't look at anyone. I really want to be totally invisible. I hear a chorus of female voices from different parts of the circle calling out matter-of-factly, I am too, me too, well so am I. I have never heard anything like this before in my entire life. Out loud, in front of a whole group of other people, that moment, those women's voices, those were the voices of the first community of people to treat me and my lover like any other couple. Just me and Lori, like, like any other couple, like, like people, like human beings. caught up with Zelda recently, and here is what she had to say. I guess I had all these queer stories bubbling up inside of me, things that have bothered me throughout my life, experiences I had that affected me so profoundly. I had a couple stories in my mind that I wanted to tell, but I never wrote them. I am someone who has terrible stage fright. I get really sick beforehand. I like am a mess. But the moment I'm actually there, I might as well transcend into heaven or something. I love it. I love it. Telling the story out loud was meaningful because I had to step into who I am in a larger sense, talking about those intimate things, the pain, everything, the range that's in those stories. You're coming out publicly. 
It's a little bit different. You don't know how they're going to land. It is very risky. That's what TMI was for me. It was a grounding. It was a foundation. TMI said to me, your stories are worthwhile. You are worthwhile to tell them. I've been to many performances and every time I'm weeping, I'm a mess. I walk out going, I can live my life. <laughs> you know, I, I can conquer the world. I walk out inspired and invigorated because one of the crucial things we're missing is the ability to be empathetic, to put yourself in someone's shoes, to have a curious nature about the other prior to judgment. So that's what I think that TMI does. It allows people to sit in a dark room, to see people they would never know, talk about things that are so intimate that they can't help relate to. They can't help it. A very special thanks to Zelda for sharing her story. Yes, thank you, Zelda. We sure do love you over here at TMI Project. In our next episode, we will introduce you to Liam, who moves to New York City after getting kicked out of his house and finds both his passion and a high he just can't resist. I'm Blake, the gay. And I'm Julie, the lesbian. Thank you so much for joining us. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe, rate, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps. TMI Project is available to offer true storytelling workshops and performances for your school or workplace. This episode of Season 4 of the TMI Project podcast, Pride Stories, was produced in partnership with Radio Kingston. It was edited and produced by Eva Tenuto and mixed by Stevie Manns. Our theme song is Secrets by Edison Woods. Our operations and programs manager is you, Blake File. That's right. And our marketing and digital coordinator is Laura Marie Ruoco. Our administrative assistant is Elijah Jackson. Our graphic designer is Lauren Gill. And our workshop leaders are Perla Ayora, Capely Kalnick, Haley Downs, Rain Grayson, Ray Lipkin, Dara Lurie, Micah, Eva Tenuto, you, Julie Novak, and me, Blake File. To learn more, support our work, and find a special writing prompt so you can start telling your own pride story, visit tmiproject.org forward slash podcast.